I'm Yasi Salik, and I'm the host of Bandsplain, a show where we explain cult bands and iconic artists by going deep into their histories and discographies. We're back with a brand new season at our brand new home, the Ringer Podcast Network, tackling a whole new batch of artists, from grunge gods to power pop pioneers to new metal legends, and many, many more. Listen to new episodes every Thursday, only on Spotify. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. This episode is brought to you by Netflix, presenting The Crown as the beloved series bids farewell. Deserving of praise on every level, says New York Magazine. Throughout its groundbreaking six-season run, The Crown has featured three different casts, earned 273 award nominations, and secured 70 award wins, including outstanding drama series. Critics rave, The Crown secures its place in the pantheon of television history. From creator and writer Peter Morgan, the final season stars Imelda Staunton, Dominic West, and SAG Award winner Elizabeth Debicki. The Crown, for your Emmy consideration in all categories. It is Wednesday, September 21st. When it comes to promoting a movie, all press is created equal. Or is it? Don't Worry Darling is a perfect example. On the surface, this is a relatively small $35 million budget fantasy thriller from Warner Brothers starring an Oscar nominee in Florence Pugh and directed by an up-and-coming actress turned filmmaker, Olivia Wilde. But the press attention on this movie is definitely not small, nor is it normal. Uh, We won't rehash it all today, but let's try in one sentence. Florence Pugh refused to promote the movie beyond attending the premiere because she was pissed that Wilde, who may or may not have fired Shia LaBeouf, began a personal relationship with Shia's replacement, Harry Styles, during the shoot. And then at the premiere, Harry Styles may or may not have spit on his other co-star, Chris Pine, which led to most of the stars canceling media appearances afterward. That makes sense? It's pretty silly. But thanks to some unforced media errors, mostly by Olivia Wilde herself, the off-screen storyline has pretty much overshadowed the actual movie, which, by the way, has not received very good reviews. But will people show up in theaters anyway? We're going to find out this weekend. Don't Worry Darling finally opens, the latest in a long line of movies whose real-world controversies have threatened to overwhelm the actual movie. Sometimes the outside's attention is good for the movie. I'm thinking Mr. and Mrs. Smith, where Brad Pitt and Angelina first got together. Sometimes it derails the whole thing. I'm thinking about Ghost in the Shell, where Scarlett Johansson was accused of whitewashing an Asian character. Same on Cameron Crowe's movie, Aloha. Would those movies have flopped anyways? Did the press attention sink them? That's the question. And we're going to get into it today with David Herron. David Heron is a really fascinating guy. He is a researcher. He's founded the research department at UTA, the agency that uh, helps actors get paid what they are worth. And he recently launched a firm called The Quorum, which does surveys and does analytics and is the equivalent of a Billy Bean type for movies, where he's looking at the numbers and trying to predict what this movie is going to open to. So he's got insights on Don't Worry Darling that you haven't seen or, or heard anywhere else. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. 
All right, we are here with David Heron. David, welcome. Thank you, Matt. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So before we start, I want to just get into a little bit about what you do for people who don't know. The science of movie tracking is... It's long. It's been around forever. Somewhat controversial because sometimes it's exactly right on. Sometimes it's wildly off. Um, sometimes there, there are multiple methodologies of how to do this and how to best try to predict who is going to show up for an opening weekend. Um, so explain a little bit about your methodology and what you do to try to figure out who's going to be there on opening weekend. Well, at its heart, film tracking is really a measurement of the effectiveness of a film's marketing campaign. And we go out and we poll several hundred people a few times a week, and we ask them a series of questions. But the two main ones that we ask are about awareness. Do people know about upcoming movies and interest? Do they want to see them? And uh, there are several companies that do it, and the methodologies between uh, what the quorum does and some of the other people in the space is slightly different. But at its heart, we're just trying to figure out if people um, are aware or interested in these movies. And the way that we use that data, the way that studios use that data, the way the industry uses that data is to make refinements and adjustments to their campaigns um, before the movie opens. So like if you're tracking week with women, maybe you put a few more ads on The Bachelor, things like that. Exactly right. Exactly right. So, you know, you, you, basically the best way to use tracking is to measure it against comps. So you identify uh, comp titles that are similar to yours and you measure how your film is tracking against those comps. If you're lower, then you have to refine your, your campaign. It might require putting out another trailer, putting some posters out, doing great uh, more ad buys, more targeted ad buys. Um, all of that to sort of get your film best position right before release. All right. So that's the preamble. Let's talk about Don't Worry Darling, because I think most objective observers of this kind of thing would recognize that this was a very different type of marketing campaign and PR push than you typically see. I mean, in some ways it was traditional that Warner Brothers is trying to pretend that it's a traditional rollout, but it is very much not. There has been a narrative off screen that has dogged this movie for about a year now, since we first learned that there was um, you know, some romantic stuff going on on the set between Olivia Wilde and Harry Styles. This is kind of spiraled out of control to the point where there were constant headlines out of the Venice Film Festival about the things that were going on off screen. What, according to your measurement and polling, is the ultimate impact of that on potential audiences here? Has this controversy helped this movie? Has it hurt? Has it made no difference? Well, it certainly helped in terms of awareness. So prior to when the whole Olivia Wilde, Shia LaBeouf controversy emerged, where she was quoted as saying that he was fired from the movie and he countered by saying, no, I quit. Awareness for the movie was actually quite low. We had awareness at about 16 or 17%. Over the course of about 14 days after that, awareness for the film doubled, which is unusual. Now, a lot happened during those two weeks, right? So it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't just the Shia LaBeouf. It was also Florence saying that she wasn't going to actively promote the movie. It was Harry Styles, you know, a clip being released of Harry Styles that showed him with some accents that, that people online didn't necessarily love. Then, of course, there was Venice and Spitgate. And then, of course, the reviews. So there was this, there was this 10-day period where there was a lot of activity, and really very unusual. I mean, it's... I can't really think of another example of a movie that kind of self-imploded in that way from a PR standpoint. And so awareness 
shut up. Now, what's interesting is that over the past seven days, you know, many of these controversies have died down and awareness has plateaued. So it hasn't really moved over the past seven days. And typically in the run up to a release, awareness goes up because the ads start hitting. You start seeing a traditional press rollout where the stars will do interviews and such. You know, Olivia Wilde canceled on The New York Times. Chris Pratt, sorry, Chris Pine canceled on Jimmy Kimmel. So they're not doing some of the traditional press type things you would typically see in the week before a movie because of this controversy. Right. But they're getting a lot of free coverage. Like Chris Pine not going on Jimmy Kimmel is generating a lot of free publicity for the movie. But is that good publicity? That's the, Or does it matter? Is all PR good PR? Well, so that's that's really the heart of the question, isn't it? Right. So we did a we did a, a separate study where we went out and we we polled 700 people about uh, about the film. And, and what we were trying to get at was whether or not this type of publicity, good or bad, or in this case, one would argue bad, is making people more or less interested in the movie. And what we found, we found a few things. We found one that the level of awareness for the movie increased. We saw that in the data. But also among people who were previously interested, as well as among the people who were new, I'm sorry, the people who were previously aware and the people who were newly aware, there were big spikes in interest. So that's people who were aware of the controversy and became more interested in seeing the film because of it. Right. By, by about a two to one margin, we saw that people said they were more interested in seeing the film as opposed to less interested in seeing the film. But there was one caveat to the data. We also asked how their um, interest in the movie would change if the reviews were good or if the reviews were bad. And we saw that many of those people who said that they were more interested in seeing the movie because of the controversies would see a diminishment in their interest if the reviews weren't good. So there's kind of this canceling out that's happening on the interest side where the controversy is getting people interested in seeing the movie. But now that they're beginning to see some of the reviews come in that aren't so great and uh, some of that goodwill that they were feeling before might be eroding. So, yeah, the movie's at 33% on Rotten Tomatoes. Not great. Um, some of the negative reviews are pretty vicious. Um, we can get into all the reasons why that might be the case, but that's a separate podcast. Let's just go with the data here. Isn't this just what happens with most movies? People might be interested, but they want to wait for the reviews. What is special about this movie and how the interest level was impacted by these reviews? I think this one is yes, uh, yes, of course. There's there's a certain segment of the population which is which is going to be highly review sensitive. Um, but this one is a really unusual case because what we saw in our study was that there was uh, an increased level of interest in this movie among people who normally wouldn't be interested in this type of film. Right. Well, okay. I have a theory on that, and it's two words: Harry Styles. Right. I mean, this is that he is the big wild card in this movie is that he has a massive fan base. They are extremely motivated and they're probably looking at this saying, this is for me, regardless of the controversy or the reviews. Yes and no. And the truth is that, you know, we probably won't find out until we see some of the exit polls, but you know, listen, I don't think that people went to, to Dunkirk to see Harry Styles. Totally different movie. This is a, you know, this is a, this is an example of Harry Styles kind of playing into his strengths. Sure. I mean, he also didn't, he didn't talk in that movie. <laughs> right. Although people might be misled a little bit. He is not the lead of this movie either. This is Florence Pugh's movie. He is a supporting character in this movie. 
Uh, true, but he's got lines. True. And he's in the marketing a ton. He's in the marketing. He's looking handsome. He's looking the way that Harry Styles fans want him to look. Mm -hmm. And so will that drive a certain level of box office? Yes, for sure. How large? It's a little bit hard to quantify at the moment. Um, but, uh, you know, it's there's there's a lot of examples of really big celebrities, specifically musicians, who go on to make feature, feature films. And the casting decision of putting them in the movies is based on this idea that, well, their fans are going to show up. You can look at Taylor Swift and Cats. <laughs> there are plenty of examples of that. Well, Gaga and Star is Born, I think, is probably the perfect example of a recent movie that really benefited from a star like that, a music star making a big crossover. Now, that was also a rigorous acting endeavor for her, and she got a lot of great notices for that. But putting a major pop star in a role like that, uh, I think, made a big difference. Yes, because it, it lent a sense of legitimacy to that movie since basically she was playing a character who was a singer. Mm -hmm. So it made sense. And there's the whole history. Barbara Streisand did it and all the other Star is Born. But that's that's a different type of situation. Let's get back to this movie. So the 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 what are you, what is the data telling you? The data is telling so we, we are hearing on our side that pre-sales are strong, um, which is a good thing for the movie. Listen, we all want this movie to succeed. Theatrical really needs this movie to succeed. We should all be rooting for this movie to succeed. Um, pre-sales look like they're strong. Uh and there is a suggestion among the pre-sales that the movie could open. Uh, at 20 or north, which would be wonderful. For a $35 million movie, that's pretty good. Right. And, you know, for a movie that went through everything it's gone through over the past three or four weeks, to get to 20 million would be wonderful. I, I, I think that the marketing campaign for this movie was really unusual. I think the biggest, the biggest question that I had in the marketing of this movie was actually taking the movie to Venice in the first place, right? You know, the reason that you go to a film festival, whether it's Venice or Toronto or New York or what have you, is because you've got the goods. You've got the you've got a movie that you want to give some sort of legitimacy to. You're doing it for an Oscar run for award season. The biggest danger in taking a movie to a festival, if it's not good, is that you get bad reviews. And then you've got 30 or 45 days between when the reviews come out and the movie's released for people to realize that the reviews aren't good. And that can really hurt a movie. You, very famously, that happened to Cloud Atlas. It happened to... Oh, yeah, the Tom Hanks movie from the Wachowskis. Right. You know, Walter Mitty sort of suffered from that same Yeah, problem. the Ben Stiller movie. Yep. Yeah. That, but that's a more... That's a general release type uh, marketing play. You know, I agree with you. I think they they got in. Venice was interested in it, mostly because of the stars involved. And they just couldn't resist. They're like, why not? We'll give this to the filmmaker. You know, she's someone that they want to be in business with. Um, they didn't, I don't think Warner's really recognized how negative the reviews would be. Um, and they also had to decide before this all blew up. So it's not like they can rescind the movie from Venice after it becomes a press problem. Um, but that goes to the history. You know, let's look at some of these other movies that have suffered these off-screen narratives and whether they have ultimately been impacted. I think the most, I don't know if you agree with this, but to me, the most similar movie is probably Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which for those who don't remember back in 2005, there was an entire narrative in the tabloids at the time about Angelina Jolie stealing Brad Pitt away from Jennifer Aniston. It was the cover of Us Weekly every week. And this movie they're making together was this, you know, giant controversial, you know, potential disaster. The movie comes out 
it opens to $50 million and makes 500 worldwide. So clearly that's an example where the off-screen romance and controversy did not impact and probably even helped it. Yes, I would agree. I think there are a lot of parallels, but there are also some differences as well. We have to sort of remember that that at the time and still today, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie were two of the biggest movie stars on the planet. And I, I don't know if, if we can say the same for the, you know, Olivia Wilde and Florence and Harry in this particular case. But what but what we what we were seeing with that movie was 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 the embodiment of what I call Us Magazine, right? So everyone buys people in Us Magazine because we love the salaciousness of what's happening in celebrities' lives. Well, we actually saw that on the screen with Mr. and Mrs. Smith. It was also a very, very sticky concept, right? You knew what that movie was about. It was two people who were basically going to be shooting at each other for two hours. When it comes to Don't Worry Darling, I think there's still a large percentage of the population that doesn't really know what this movie's about. Right. And that's not going to help. Yeah. And that was a bigger budget. It was over a hundred million dollar budget and it was marketed as a big summer popcorn movie. This is being marketed a little bit differently as more of a thinking person's thriller type movie. So I, I agree. There are differences, but controversy can also derail a movie. I'm thinking of not necessarily romantic oriented movies, but something like let's look at uh, Aloha, the Cameron Crowe movie that came out in 2015. That is a movie that was dogged by a, a culture scandal where he cast Emma Stone as an Asian-American character, um, which seems hilarious now, but that did happen. And got he got shit for it. And the, that became the narrative around the movie. And that movie opened to $9 million, ultimately grossed 20-something worldwide, was a huge money loser. And amazingly, Cameron Crowe, one of the you know my favorite directors of the past 30 years, has not made a feature film since. So there are consequences to these kinds of controversies. Now, that movie also was not good. Right. Would it have opened had there not been a controversy attached to it? Uh, probably not. And it's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating note that you just made that he hasn't made a movie since, which is hard to believe. You know, I think that that period between 2010 and 2020, there were a lot of movies that were wrapped up in controversy because of whitewashing, you know, Ghost in the Shell comes to mind. So, you know, and, and there are there are also there are just various controversies now. We live in a social media age where things blow up very quickly. People are always on edge when they're doing press. I mean, look at what happened with John Cena, where he enraged the Chinese government and had to ultimately apologize there to get the movie released. Um, there are controversies all the time. But what does the data inform about whether these controversies impact the movies? Is it ultimately just good movies will succeed, people will see movies if they want to, regardless of the controversies, or does this stuff matter? Well, I think that it's it's a nuanced answer, right? You can also look at what happened with Tilda Swinton and Doctor Strange, right? So there was a lot of pushback about her being cast in what many people consider to be an Asian character. And that certainly didn't hurt the movie. And one would argue that it didn't hurt the movie because Doctor Strange is a property and Marvel is just is bigger than any controversy. And, and, and no controversy like that could bring down a movie the size or scope of Doctor Strange. Ghost in the Shell was certainly hurt. Aloha was hurt. Ender's Game, which suffered from a controversy back in 2013 because you know Orson Scott Card, who was the author of the book, was known to be homophobic and opposed same-sex marriage. And, and in the six or seven weeks leading up to that movie's release, there was an enormous outcry about that movie. 
And that movie had a plum early November release date. It was an expensive movie that cost over a hundred million dollars to make, and it made it didn't it didn't open. It simply didn't. It made sixty one million dollars domestically total. So, but at the same time, the movie wasn't great. Right. So there's it always always comes back to the quality of the content. But there's also this other thing about. Are we living in a bubble? And when I say we, I mean you and I and most of your listeners who are in the industry. Does the does the general public really pay very much attention to these sort of things? Well, that's a great question because Warner Brothers, when you talk to them about all this, they're like, you know what? The average person does not give a shit about this. They just don't. If they want to see the movie, they're going to see it. If the controversy makes them aware of the movie, fine. It's not going to prevent people from going to see something that they want to see. Right. There are so there are four there there are far more people who are going to make their decision about seeing a movie based on whether or not it speaks to them personally on whatever level. They're going to look at Rotten Tomatoes and the days leading up to release. Then there are people who are going to make the decision about a movie based on whether or not offense is one of the offense one of their sensibilities, because the size of the population that is offended is much smaller in comparison to the general public. But doesn't that seep into the general media coverage and conversation? I mean, look at Don't Worry Darling. Yes, this was a media controversy, but it then led to Olivia Wilde canceling interviews with the New York Times and Chris Pine not doing promotion for the movie, which ultimately does trickle down to less awareness. Yes and no. Keep in mind that on our tracker, awareness for this movie is at is at thirty two percent. I think it's at thirty one percent, which means that seventy percent of the population doesn't know this movie exists, <laughs> right? But is that high or low? Is that good or bad? That's really yeah. low. That's low awareness. Despite all this, despite all of this, awareness is still really low for this movie. Now, the for a movie that let's just suppose this movie opens to twenty million dollars, we would normally expect a movie. A movie that opens to $20 million, we would expect awareness to be somewhere between 40 and 45%. It's at 32% in just with just three or four days left to go before, before release. So awareness is actually quite low. The fact that pre-sales are strong in this particular case suggests that despite the low awareness, there are people who are buying tickets because of the controversy. Or because of Harry Styles. Or, you know, it might just be that the people who are aware are hyper-aware and are hyper-motivated. Or yes, or hyper motivated. But my point being, the fact that it only has thirty percent awareness is points to the fact that a lot of people just don't even know what this movie is, and if they don't know what the movie is, they're not even aware of the controversy. And that's, I think, that's really that's really the, the bigger issue here. The failure of some of these other movies that we were talking about, whether it's it's Ghost in the Shell or Ender's Game or Aloha, really have to do more with the fact that they just weren't very good movies. Yeah, but then this movie is also not very good. And you're saying that it could overperform. It could overperform. It will be. It, it will be interesting to see how well this movie holds. Mm-hmm. It will be interesting to see if it's uh, how front loaded it is. Meaning there could be looky loos coming in for the car crash, but then realizing it's not for them. Yeah, I mean a twenty million dollar opening. What we don't know is if a twenty million dollar opening is going to translate to a seventy million total or a forty million dollar total. We don't know that yet, but um, it. You know, typically, if a movie doesn't have the reviews, it tends to be front loaded. So we, it, the, the chances of it going from 20 to 40 are greater than it going from 20 to 70. But in this case, you know, the data suggests that there could be some lift that's happening from the controversy. But I don't know if it's, it's if it's meaningful enough 
to really turn it into something enormous. So I often do over-unders on box office on this show, and the tracking on this one will come in. Probably final tracking will be about 17, let's say. So I think you would you would probably take the over. I would take the over. And by the way, let me say that the, the tracking numbers for this movie, um, in terms of the forecast, around 17, 16 to 18, have not really changed a whole lot. Yeah, Warners has said that. They're like, you know what? This controversy may be getting all the headlines, but on our numbers, it's really, the numbers are staying the same. We expect 17, 18 million, that's it. Yeah, so I'm going to go I'm going to go a little bit over simply because it, it appears as though the pre-sales are strong, which is a strong indicator. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm going to go, I'm going to go over, uh, you're saying over uh, 16 is the over-under in this case? I, I would, let's say 17, just because you, you assume Warners is probably uh, lowballing a little bit. All right, I'm going to go I'm going to go over. I actually I would have taken the under before this show. I just think that the re- bad reviews and kind of the stench around this movie is not good and people will stay away. Um but you've sort of convinced me, I think, the pre-sale and the fact that these the uh interest level is among a kind of highly motivated type of person. Uh I think you convinced me to take the over. Um, but I'm going to say the movie doesn't hold. Oh, interesting. I don't know though, because with someone like Harry Styles, isn't doesn't that mean that there may be some repeat business just to be in his presence? There are other, you, you know, you can go on YouTube and you can watch his video over <laughs> and over again. That's probably true, but you can't watch him uh, having sex with with uh, Florence Pugh over and over, and that's only in the movie. Yes, um, but you, right. got, you got to pay sixteen bucks every time to do it. That's true. All right. Thank you, David Heron. This has been great. Uh, we will, we, we are nothing if not accountable on this show. So we will talk about uh, whether we are right or wrong next week. Thank you very much. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. All right. We are back with the call sheet. My prediction for today. Craig, have you seen the news out of the NBA? Robert Sarver has announced that he has begun the process of selling both the Phoenix Suns and the Phoenix Mercury franchises. Pretty big news. Yes. Do you have a Phoenix Suns future ownership prediction, I assume? I I do. Um, For those who don't know, Sarver has been accused of making racist statements and running a operation that uh, was, let's just say, not the most upstanding operation in the NBA. Uh, There was a pretty damning report in ESPN last fall that suggested that uh, some of the other owners were upset with him. And finally, the league did an investigation, came out, initially came out with a suspension that a lot of the players did not like and wanted it to go further. And some of the other partners at the Suns basically said they're pressuring him to sell. And today he says he's selling. My prediction is that I believe Bob Iger, the former CEO of the Walt Disney Company, is going to front a group to bid on, if not outright purchase, the Suns. The Suns are valued to be around $1.8, $1.9 billion. So so Iger couldn't purchase this on his own, right? No, he would front a team, but that's pretty normal. I mean, I think he would probably put together a group of rich guys and diverse people, and uh, he would, you know, make it an appealing package for the league. Um, There's a couple reasons why I think so. And I wrote about this actually in November for Puck in my newsletter, where I, I basically predicted this then when the news first broke. Iger has made no secret of the fact that he is a sports guy and would love to own a sports team. 
They do not come up very often. The Lakers are not selling. Uh, he lives in LA and I think Phoenix is close enough and he would probably love the chance to be the owner of the Phoenix Suns. Um, he's also super close with Adam Silver, the NBA commissioner, because ESPN and ABC air NBA games. So they've worked together for many years. They're, they're close friends. The other thing is he is actually very close friends with Chris Paul of the Suns, who was the president of the Players Association during those COVID bubble games when, oh. when they took place at the Disney compound in Florida. Interesting. Um, he, Iger said, I consider him a very good friend of, of Chris Paul. Uh, the other thing is Iger is also very good friends with the owners of the Atlanta Hawks. If you don't know, the Atlanta Hawks are owned by Tony Ressler and his wife, who happens to be Jamie Gertz, the actress. And they were friends in L.A. with the Igers. Iger is also married to Willow Bay, who famously was the host of NBA Inside Stuff with Ahmad Rashad. There are lots of connections between Iger and the NBA. And I think if the commissioner can get a deal and, you know, can get a, a, a ownership group in place that is appealing to the players association, to the league, then Iger would be the perfect front man for this. I feel like it's not often that something seems like such a great match. And <laughs> it feels like this is almost a guarantee. I mean, there's downsides, of course. I mean, there's, there's, Iger is not that rich, as you mentioned. So he would have to have partners. It's not like he could be a Steve Ballmer and just come in and say, yep, I'd like to buy this, please. So there would, you know, that's a big thing. But also there, you never know what the interest level among other people is going to be. I mean, there may be people that have been sitting, waiting in the wings for this for a long time. Iger also is not a local guy in Arizona, and there may be a push to have local ownership there. But that tends not to be that big of a problem, especially if they get people involved who do have some local ties. Uh, maybe a guy like Steve Nash or someone you know joins the ownership group. Uh, but we'll see. All right, that's the show for today. I want to thank David Heron of The Quorum for joining me. I want to thank producer Craig Holbeck, and I want to thank you. We will see you tomorrow. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.